This week on 1001 Album Complaints, the self-proclaimed King Solomon gives us a 1964 release that captures the depths of heartbreak and the bliss of finding who is good for you. This collection of singles and b-sides pairs a lifelong performer giving the music industry one more chance with a world-class songwriter looking to make his big break as a producer. So what happens when a young preacher who has his future success foretold during his formative years teams up with a musician acutely aware of his impending demise? Will their collaboration make us feel like crying, or will we find something to love when we dive into Solomon Burke's rock and soul? Up next on 1001 Album Complaints. Hello, 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 and welcome everybody to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. As always, we have four lifelong friends, lifelong musicians, and lifelong critics here to examine albums on the list of 1001 albums you have to hear before you die and give our incredibly learned and sometimes jackass opinions on these great pieces of work from other formidable artists. Sometimes jackass. I don't know well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> With us, as always, we have our players. I am Tom. I am Adam. I'm Phil. And I'm Rob. Excellent, excellent, everybody. We're coming off of last week's album, where we looked at 461 Ocean Boulevard by Eric Clapton, which, if you have not listened to that episode, go back and listen to it now, because spoilers, that album sucked. Listen to the episode, not the album. <laughs> not the album. Listen to the episode. Absolutely. There's no reason to listen to that album. Don't give Eric Clapton the 18th of a cent that he gets for streaming that. I thought of a reason. If, if you happen to be in the FBI and you need to get a cult leader out of a compound of some sort, <laughs> it'd be a good option there. PsyOps. They're all over that. Well, we're taking a different turn this week, and we are going a whole different genre. Ten years before 461 Ocean Boulevard came out, we're going back to 1964, and we are going to listen to Solomon Burke's Rockin' Soul. As I stated at the end of the podcast last week when we sort of decided that we were going to do this particular album, I'm a big fan of this album. This is one of the ones that is in my regular heavy rotation. Uh, I hope I didn't poison everybody's uh, opinion of it by saying I thought it was fantastic beforehand. But yeah, I think this album is great. And uh, I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. So Adam, tell me, what did you think about the album? Right out of the gate, like you said, it's a huge difference from the, uh, the Eric Clapton album. I loved it. It was fun. The first track, my wife popped her head in and said, "That's from Dirty Dancing," and said, "So that was a good, that was like a, a great like intro to the album." Is that my wife even popped her head in and said, "Hey, I like this." So yeah, it was fun. It was very consistent. The folks back then knew how to cut an album. Overall, a great great listen. Great listen. Yeah, it's funny you said that about Dirty Dancing because that is exactly uh, what my wife said as well. So I, I think that's funny. I wondered if I would be special, but obviously not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in general, the, the the album, it sort of gave me all the best feelings of Sam Cooke and some of that, like, I think some of what Phil Spector sort of aspired to with that sort of wall of sound background with also like a real present and forward 
and beautiful vocal take. Yeah, I thought it was great. I had never heard this record. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I agree. It came out of the box. I, I just took a note that it, you know, in the first 30 seconds, it had more dynamics than the entire album, the Clapton album that we've already shit upon. I was surprised in particular that I'm not more familiar with it. I knew Cry to Me, the, the first song, but in general, I'm not familiar with Solomon Burke, so I was excited to get into it. And I immediately heard the kind of Sam Cooke vibe because that is an artist I am more familiar with. Well, I guess what really struck me right off the bat that I was surprised by was that Solomon Burke had quite a singing range, notes and styles. And I, I thought that made it really fun and interesting and had a, a pretty good amount of variety while staying consistent and kind of ambiance oriented. I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, I definitely think he covers a lot of range. I will admit, I have never seen the movie Dirty Dancing. And so uh, I was searching online and like Cry to Be Dirty Dancing came out. I was like, what the fuck? Cry to Be was in Dirty Dancing? <laughs> and I watched the scene and it doesn't actually seem like that appropriate of a song to play in that particular scene. But, uh, you know, I can see uh, in a movie that was very musically driven, I can, I'm sure that they had some like total music buff who was just making all the decisions on what out what songs were going to be in there and i can see them being like no we just have to include this it's a great song there was that remake of the movie the man from uncle that came out a couple of years ago and the guy who played superman yeah yeah there's a, a rendition of that song where the very attractive woman is like kind of dancing around an apartment while that song plays. And I, I was definitely like, Oh yeah, that's a, that's a good usage for that song. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day when, you know, the attractive young women were dancing to songs like this and not the garbage that is getting put out these days. <laughs> Careful. Your old man is showing through. Oh well, yeah. I, mean, listen, I, will, I will wear that like a badge of honor. I was an old man in high school when it came to music. So, but Phil, it's also interesting that you mentioned Phil Spector. In researching this album, I uh, listened to this audio book about uh, Burt Burns, the guy who produced many of the songs on this album, and actually wrote several of the songs on this album, including Cry to Me. They, they talk about sort of his interactions with Phil Spector and how like even back in the day, like everybody fucking hated Phil Spector, but he was just really good at what he did. They sort of were like, he's such a little squirrely son of a bitch and like we fucking hate him. He's really bossy. He's really demanding, but like, goddamn, does he make some good music? So you want him on your album, right? Yeah, you just, you just give him whatever he wants because he's going to make a hit. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I intentionally didn't really research any of the, the production elements because, you know, I figured you would, you would be able to. I, I'm curious, like, when did this record come out? Like, what year did this come out? So this was released in 1964 on Atlantic Records. It was released in like in November 64. But this album is actually a collection of A-sides and B-sides that were put out between 1962 and 1964. Mm. This is back in the day before artists had like that sort of cohesive vision for an album. To sort of kind of, you know, like set the the scene for all this stuff. This was that very commoditized music industry back in the day where like you would be an artist and you'd come in and they would have a stable of songwriters that were just cranking out songs. So this was released on Atlantic Records, which back in the day. Atlantic Records was like the rhythm and blues powerhouse. They had the big acts in rhythm and blues, and they had all of the sort of songwriters on staff that were writing these rhythm and blues songs. So 
you as an artist would sort of come in and they'd have shopped this particular song around to like six or seven different artists. They all would have recorded a bunch of versions of it. Oftentimes they would have released multiple versions of this just to see which one sort of caught fire. So this was a basically a compendium of a bunch of A-sides and B-sides that Solomon Burke put out between 1962 and 1964. And they kind of coalesced it into one album. As you started getting more into that sort of album-oriented music, uh, 1964 is also, I believe, the year that the Beatles put out Meet the Beatles in the U.S. And mm -hmm. people started buying albums as opposed to just buying those little, you know, the little 45 singles. Right. That's um, so interesting. Just, yeah. just how different the entire industry was so that's yeah that's that's crazy it's such a foundational thing that like the approach of the artist kind of conforms itself to the system that is working in and so the approach is sort of just like come in rip out you're going to do a session you're going to record two or three songs we're going to pick two of them we're going to put them on a 45 with an a side and a b side and we're going to release it and that might be all that you ever do like you might never go back and release another album after that it might be your sort of sole contribution if it doesn't catch fire so that's a good segue into talking about Solomon Burke in general. Solomon Burke has a very interesting backstory to him as a child. And it's going to speak a little bit to some of the stuff that you guys were talking about, like about sort of the, the understanding of range and stuff like that when you when you know a little bit about his his history. So born March 13th, 1936 in Philadelphia. His grandmother, by all accounts, from what I'm reading, I'm just extrapolating this, she was kind of crazy, but also extraordinarily religious. And 12 years before he was born, she foretold his birth. And in anticipation of his birth, she founded Solomon's Temple, which was a church in Philadelphia. It was a black church, but it was accepting of all peoples. And it was basically, she's like, I'm going to have a grandson named Solomon, which is actually his middle name, but... and. This was sort of like in preparation for him. So when he was born, like literally when he was born, he was consecrated as a preacher in his grandmother's church. <laughs> Man. Which is kind of intense, right? So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a pressure on him. But when he was seven years old, he gave his first sermon in her church. And by the time he was nine, he was basically a full-time preacher. Nine years old, getting up in front of crowds. Listen, we grew up in Catholic church. He wasn't doing the Exodus shit. He was giving you know singing some gospel, right, right, and you know doing the whole like high, high, low, low preaching, sort of you know working that range and knowing how to work a crowd. Yeah, wow. All right. Then by the time he was twelve, he was not only traveling as a preacher and earning money traveling as a preacher. He also had a weekly radio show. We're going to talk about a couple of these songs that I particularly think he has like fantastic mic control. And if from the time you're 12, you're working a radio mic, you know how to get in and get into yeah, it. Yeah, you're cutting your teeth. Yeah, in your yeah, formative yeah. years. That's, that's yeah. intense. Which is honestly, it's like a really big difference from a lot of the other groups at the time were people that were like living in New York tenements and singing on stoops and in hallways and stuff like that. Probably the first time they ever experienced a microphone is the first time that they go and actually record their first single. Right. And this is a guy who knew a microphone. He was intimate with it. And for most of his life up until he was like late teenager thought that he was just going to be a preacher. So as the story goes, when he was 18, 
he wrote his first song for his grandmother, which was a Christmas song. And so he goes in and he sings this song for his grandmother. And she says, oh, I actually, I want to give you your Christmas present early. It's like a week before Christmas. And she had bought him a guitar for Christmas, not really knowing that he had written a song for her, but sort of seeing that he was going to be, uh, again, she had like the power of foretelling. So she knew that he was going to be musical. And so he sang the song for her. She gave him the guitar. She then apparently spent all evening telling him about what his life was going to be like, making all these predictions about his future, about like, you know, the success that he was going to have and the trials and tribulations that he was going to go through. And then she literally dies the next day. Wow. Christmas Day? Wow. No, no. This is a week before Christmas. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But she gave him his Christmas present early because he wrote a song for her and she was like, oh, I just happened to have bought you a guitar. This is pretty fortuitous here. That's heavy, man. Yeah. I mean, and from the standpoint of, of a kid, I mean, 18, you're, I mean, I was a kid at 18. This is a different time. Maybe he wasn't a kid at 18, but you know, it is a lot of pressure that like the, you know, sort of the matriarch of your family is giving you this prediction of your future. It's a lot to live up to. You've already a preacher foretold 12 years before you were even born and you already accomplished that. Now she's giving you sort of another uh, thing to accomplish. It's a lot to lay on uh, somebody that young, but uh, I think you know, say he, pretty, he stepped up pretty well. So his music career basically started when he entered a talent contest at the age of 18. He was in like a singing gospel group with a couple of other friends of his. And there was a talent contest at a local church. And like he wanted to go and enter the group into this talent contest. And one of the guys is like, I just got a TV. And so I'm just going to like watch my TV. And the other guy's like, I got tickets to a football game. I don't really want to go. And so he went by himself and actually got discovered at that talent contest. A, um, a local DJ who uh, his wife knew somebody from Apollo Records and, and ended up introducing him to somebody from Apollo Records. He went on, he recorded a couple of singles, and they did okay. Like 18 years old, he's got some singles that are charting. They're not fantastic, but you know they're on the charts. And then basically they fuck him over uh, out of his royalties, and he gets completely soured on the music industry, and he says, fuck it, and he leaves. And he goes to school and becomes a mortician. Now, is this in the late 50s that he he has his little glimmer of stardom or, or, or his music career and then it crashes? This is actually in like the early-ish 50s. So like he was oh, born okay. in 36. So this is like 54. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. So 54, he's like, he records a couple. They, they do okay, but then he gets screwed over. And the one theme that is going to run throughout like Solomon Burke's career is that like he is very focused on making money. He is super focused on like, I'm going to make money. And one of the things that will probably not uh, shock you, but he had based upon how sexual his lyrics is, he had a lot of kids, but he wasn't one of those guys who just like drops kids all over the place. Like he, by all accounts was actually like a pretty good family man and dad. So and he drops out of school, works for his aunt, becomes a mortician, because uh, the aunt owned a funeral home, gets married, starts a family, and basically like forgets about the music industry for about the next like six years. And then he records a couple of songs in Philadelphia, small Philadelphia label. Those just happen to catch the eye of Atlantic Records. They invite him up, say, hey, we want to sign you. He does like a handshake signing. And um, they bring him up in like December of 1960. And he does his first session for Atlantic, which is basically just like three songs. It's the first time he works with this guy, Burt Burns, who was the producer on a lot of the of the songs on, uh, or basically all of the songs on um, Rock and Soul. And this is the thing that like really cracks me up. So he records his first session. 
two of the songs he didn't really like, but the last song was that song, Just Out of Reach, which was an old Patsy Cline song. I'm sure you can 100% hear it. Right? Right. Yeah, I hear that in there. Um, But he doesn't even stay. Basically, he comes in, he records his part, and they're like, all right, we're going to fill it. He's like, don't worry about it. I'm just going to, I'm going to leave. I'm going back to Philadelphia because it's supposed to snow tonight and I got a job making $4 an hour shoveling snow. So I'm going to go back and do my job shoveling Make snow because I have money. eight kids to support. <laughs> <laughs> eight kids, which I is like, he's like 24 years old. He's got eight kids. It's fucking wow. out of control. Yeah. He had, he ended up having a lot of businesses, right? That's what, like he owned a bunch of mortuaries and some restaurants and then, I heard an anecdote where he wasn't necessarily so popular with his his tour companions because he would find a way to sell them sell guys food like at inflated prices when he knew they couldn't uh, be served in the South uh, any at any other restaurant. And then wow, and there was like a quote from I think Sam of Sam and Dave being like, you know, he charged me ten bucks for one pork chop or you know, but I had nothing else to eat, so no options. Yeah, back on that on that Chitlin circuit back in the day. No. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. So he would bring extra food on tour to sell his bandmates that hadn't prepared properly, <laughs> and then upsell them, and then, and then yeah, okay, that's Damn. that's correct, and and Damn, that's capitalism. No, and literally, I think he would have like surge pricing once they got into the southern states. Like if you bought it, you, you had an opportunity to buy it at a cheaper price. <laughs> Dude, there were stories about him basically getting locked out of playing at good venues because he would say in his contract that he had the catering for that night. It was like his company would provide the catering for that night. And he had like soul dogs and like shit like that. And so he would basically like, I'm taking all the fucking money out of this place. Like I'm doing the concessions. I'm getting the, I'm getting the door. I'm getting every possible cent that I can out of this. Damn. And places would be like, you sold it out. But like, I made like 30% less than I normally do. Cause you got the concession money. So like, you're never coming back. And he was sort of like, fuck you. I made my money now. Like some other place. It's <laughs> that preacher training. You got to pass that. You got to pass that basket around. The one on the pass long that. handle. <laughs> yeah, man. God. It's like some Led Zeppelin shit, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm just picturing like being on the tour bus and like he's sitting there with like 60 like pre-made meals and all of your other buddies on the bus are starving. And he's like, you want some? Smoking cigars. How much did you make tonight? All right, I'll take uh, I'll take five percent of that, ten percent of that. It had to have been he had to have like packed a grill and had a cooler full of meat and like set it up like he's at a fish parking lot, you know, serving up grilled cheese. (laughs) Yeah, man. Hey fellas, I'll take your order in a minute. I gotta go perform. And he like scoots off and runs on stage to do (laughs) it. Oh, and this is he was probably the headliner in many of these shows. So he's making the most money already. And he's like, no, I'm going to take a piece of yours too. Which kind of makes sense is why like when they fucked him on his royalties, he was just like, oh, fuck this. I am done doing business with Going you guys. after it, right. Yeah. Yeah, so he, he still had up until his death in like the 2000s. He had like many, many businesses that he owned. Um, they said multiple mortuaries, but he was still selling. He was still doing like the concession work and having like his own food lines and stuff that he would be selling at his shows. That's like the precursor to pop stars like now, like having their own sneaker brand and like their own clothing line or their own makeup, whatever. It's like monetize, monetize. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's just interesting that, you know taking it back 70 years or whatever it is. 
Yeah. Oddly enough, like the status of what a artist makes now, which is all like, you know, streaming, you don't really make that much. You make it on shows, you make it on merchandising. Back then, the record companies were totally chiseling them on getting on the royalties. Mm-hmm. Like they were not making much money on the royalties. We, we talked about sort of the first song that he recorded, Out of Reach of, of My Two Empty Arms. The Patsy Cline version is My Two Open Arms. I like Empty Arms better, but whatever. Again, it brings it back to that time of like a stable of songwriters would work for a record label and they would be writing songs for that record label. And so a little bit of context is that i mean that song doesn't sound like any of the other solomon burke songs on the album right yeah i I actually made a note that i thought it sounded like the hank williams song cold cold heart but the same thing yes the same thing we're talking about like just a a style of the era right if they had replaced the piano with pedal steel totally country tune yeah i thought his voice sounded like elvis totally that's my note too as context right this is the my understanding is this is the original version of the word cover is that in this era they would have a songwriter pen a song and then the record label would be like let's put it out to all our artists and have them all record it so we have all our bases covered so that every possible iteration of this song if there's any chance this song is going to make money or hit that's what the term cover meant. Oh, to cover, cover to cover your base. Yeah. Yes. I the shotgun approach to just get out Ooh. to the different, you know, we'll get different it on a country uh, station audiences. Yeah. yeah. Just get it to different audiences. You know, Adam, if only you had been there back in the day, I'd been much happier in high school saying I was in a shotgun band than a cover band. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been a lot more badass. Yeah, right? Sounds way more badass. It does. <laughs> well, then we would have gotten on stage and they would have been like, oh, okay. Yeah. No, you guys. Yeah. Sure, there's not another word you could describe yourselves as. So Atlantic Records had been like dominant in the R&B game for a while. And uh, they had just recently lost to a deal with ABC, Ray Charles. So they had Ray Charles and they had uh, Bobby Darren, or like the two guys that were like paying the bills at Atlantic Records. So knowing that, can you totally hear Ray Charles in that song? Like, I feel like they're like, oh, this was originally written. Like, you know, you get a stable of songwriters. They're writing for the talent that you have. And so I can see them being like, oh, this is the perfect Ray Charles song who Oddly enough, like his big hit album was like Modern Sounds and Country and Western Music. Most people don't think about the fact that Ray Charles was kind of like a black country and Western singer for a while. I think he calls out Ray Charles in song. Uh, it's like the fifth or sixth track. I yeah, think it's a wedding song. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can't no- is it Can't Nobody Love You? Sam, Sam called said. you cake and ice cream. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Interesting aside about that is that that is song that is from the song Sam Cooke song Nothing Can Change This Love, which actually with Rob, I performed on stage for my first wedding anniversary and like that sang it to Tina and then I had bought her like the album Mr. Soul that had that song on it. Wow. Yeah, that's a great song. Well done, sir. That is some smooth, smooth operating there. Well, yeah, I clearly, I, I listen to the album way more than Tina ever does. <laughs> it's like buying yourself the album. Yeah, <laughs> it's totally. for you, Art. Uh, we'll just keep it in my room in this glass case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Bray Charles was just like a force in the industry at the time. This is like that weird period where like, there was kind of like country and Western black singers. And then there was like rhythm and blues black singers. And the, the title of this, Rock and Soul, comes from Solomon Burke basically not wanting to be associated with rhythm and blues because it was pictured in the church as like the devil's music. 
So he was like, I'm not a rhythm and blues singer. I'm a rock and soul singer. Like that's wow. my official sort of genre. And so he kind of credits himself with being the first guy to say that like we're soul singers, but he is also the kind of guy that gives himself a lot of credit for a lot of stuff that maybe is not super earned. Either way, soul singing was sort of just being created around that time, which by the way, the fact that he's like saying, I am, I was the first soul singer and on the first collection of singles album that he put out, he's referencing a Sam Cooke song that was already on an album called Mr. Soul. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Bit of a stretch. (laughs) So yeah, he was described by the, the chief of Atlantic records, this guy, Jerry Wexler as a piece of work, wily, highly intelligent, a salesman of epic proportions, sly, sure-footed, a never say die entrepreneur while also branding him a card-carrying fabulist. Solomon told so many versions of the same happening that it's unreal. Basically saying he's kind of full of shit. Right. Now, we talked about rock and soul. This is like a fantastic aside. I really love this like visual. He was crowned as the king of rock and soul in a, um, a Baltimore performance, but he did it for a week straight and like every night they came out and crowned him as the king of rock and soul and so thereafter he would straight up perform with a replica of the british crown jewels on his head a scepter and a gigantic cape and apparently he that is showmanship right there yeah this this works he would employ a dwarf that would come out behind him (laughs) so that he would then throw off the cape and then it, the dwarf would like be covered by the cape and the cape would just walk itself off stage like of its own. Kid direction. Rock's a punk, man. Kid Rock didn't come up with nothing. Well, hold yeah. on. So that's a, that's a James Brown thing. And I read an anecdote that James Brown obviously came to it later that he got it from Solomon Burke. Totally. So, so much so and was so obsessed with uh, taking it over that he apparently, I don't know if this is true or not. There's probably a lot of apocryphal stories about Solomon Burke, but I read that there was a gig where James Brown paid him $7,500 just to walk out on stage and hand him the crown and cape in front of the audience. <laughs> just to make it official. That was That's it. He didn't awesome. have to sing. He didn't have to do anything. Right. <laughs> oh, and I'm sure Solomon Berg was like, listen, I get the concessions on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure, I get the concessions. You need a piece of this merch. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, shit. Okay, so listen, we've, we've established Solomon Berg. He's, he's a crazy man. He grew up with like a lot of like the weight of prophecy on his shoulder, but he also was like very intimate with working a crowd very early on in life through his sort of preaching lifestyle, crazy hard worker, the work ethic, impeccable. And so he comes out and he starts, uh, he does his first recording session, hooks up with the guy, Burt Burns, Burt Burns, interesting character. I, I listened to like an entire audio book about Burt Burns. So I just want to, you know, just, like throw in a little bit. He produced this album. Basically, he wrote Cry to Me. For some reason, he's listed as Burt Russell on the official. Uh, But he also wrote Beautiful Brown Eyes, Goodbye Baby, Baby Goodbye. You can't love them all. In addition, he wrote Twist and Shout. He wrote Hang On Sloopy. Okay. He wrote Peace of My Heart. Blow my mind here. Keep them coming. uh, Here Comes the Night. And then he produced for Van Morrison, Baby Please Don't Go and Brown Eyed Girl. And he produced for the Drifters Under the Boardwalk. Wow. That is a fucking hell of a career. Yeah, that's a real. The piece of my heart, it's particularly poignant because Burt Burns had rheumatic fever when he was a kid and it damaged his heart. And they basically told him, like, you're not going to live until you're 40. And so he had that, like, hanging over his head 
his entire life. He actually died at 38. Wow. So he kind of, and he didn't really even get his start in the music industry. Like his big break was producing Solomon Burke and that he, that was when he was 30. So basically in like eight years, he wrote fucking twist and shout, which is like, come on, who doesn't know twist and shout? The Beatles yeah. did twist and shout. Right. And like produced brown eyed girl, baby, please like peace of my heart. And like, these are really great songs. It's a, pretty interesting career for a guy who had such a short career but also apparently he was kind of a gigantic dick and so like he died pretty early and jerry wexler the guy who um was the head of atlantic records they like hated each other and so he did his best to try to erase him from the history of like all this stuff and basically say like yeah like no 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 it wasn't him that was that was me or that was like you know one of the other guys at atlantic definitely wasn't is that the do you think that's the last name change there didn't you say no because that was contemporary to the time okay like his real name i thought maybe he went in the back no that's (laughs) that's bird smith who handled the concessions at the funeral (laughs) <laughs> i'm gonna guess it was solomon burke although maybe not like apparently solomon burke and him did not get along apparently they fought a whole bunch and the the, the quote that they say is when he first walked into the recording session and saw burt burns for the first time he said who is this patty motherfucker like that was and that has become like a controversial line like solomon burke has both claimed that he did say it and then later on in life claimed he never said it like in many different interviews people have asked him about that was that an irish slur there was that what that was it was but burt burns is fucking jewish (laughs) (laughs) well i I also heard uh that he first passed them he first suggested solomon burke do hang on sloopy and solomon burke was like fuck no yeah (laughs) no fucking way i'm doing this i'm not doing dog this part (laughs) one of the other things that like i i found to be really fucking interesting i listened to this book it's called um here comes the night really interesting book not good the author basically is just like vomiting music facts at you the entire time there's not a really good like narrative flow to it but you do get a lot of like context there and one of the things that i found really interesting is that uh, apparently in like the 50s there was like this like mambo craze that went on in new york where everybody was like crazy about the mambo and like afro-cuban style music and so all the songwriters that ended up getting onto the roles of these like, you know, production houses that were cranking out these albums were like super influenced by these like Caribbean mambo rhythms. And they were kind of like trying to incorporate some of that into the songs. You could hear it more on some songs than others. But I just found that to be like really interesting, like interesting context. Like now that I'm listening for it, I can kind of hear it and cry to me. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But then, yeah. That's, I don't find that shocking. Yeah. I wrote I wrote Caribbean a couple of times and Calypso a couple of times. I, I definitely hear it in there. In a lot of the production. Well, I, I mean, right. Tom, you you have this on on vinyl, right? I do. Yes. Is song is song eight the second side? Does it flip over after "You're Good for Me" and then the album ordering on Spotify is different than the album ordering on the vinyl? And if you actually look at the album image that they use for the for the vinyl on Spotify, it That'll shows <laughs> it shows the right order, the order that is on the vinyl interesting yeah oh that's fun yeah i'm looking at it right now that's crazy yeah so i was gonna say like like, let's jump into the songs but chronologically i'm looking at the first song is goodbye baby baby goodbye not as cry to me so let's talk about goodbye baby baby goodbye i love this song i think it's fantastic and i think the backup singers totally make this song yeah slamming so i just just a gorgeous blues song right this is one of those ones where the emoting that we lacked so 
much in the last album, right? It, it's really where where Solomon Burke comes in and shines, I think. There's another tune where I think he, he does an even better job. Well, not, I mean, better, right? It's just different. I do have a note here. Wait, I which which tune are you talking about that you think he does a better job? Is it Someone to Love Me? Yes, because... Recorded at the same session. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was having a good day. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I loved his low notes on Goodbye Baby. I, I wrote down, he, he does this going away thing that's, I don't know, you know, he, he, a low C or something, but it's, it's, it's dead on, it's perfect. And I also liked, uh, I noted there, it feels like there's tremolo on the guitar. Yeah. I, I didn't know like when that effect. It's, it's, all, it's all over the record. I, I've actually wondered about this, listening to it, because uh, there's another track it sort of reminded me of, which is Aretha Franklin's chain of fools that has a real strong tremolo guitar and to the point where it sounds out of tune and every time i hear it i think like that's out of tune that would never make the cut today just with like all the auto tune and it's sort of like in a weird way limits your expectations and limits like how much pitchiness you can handle before you go so i have wondered if there was an era of maybe fender amps where it actually had like a subtle pitch vibrato in there not a tremolo let's find out cool <laughs> yeah and any that that stuck out and i i, I dug it i, I, agree. I dug the tremolo on that on, on that track because it, it just kind of popped out to me yeah i i agree i thought goodbye baby really jumped out i hadn't heard the song before this past week and it just felt like a classic that i hadn't heard like it instantly felt familiar which is always a good sign and kind of didn't i don't know where this one's been hiding like why why isn't this on the radio why wasn't this part of my education <laughs> right right something is unjust in the world i totally dig that yeah but you talk about i noticed what adam noticed too that the, the range and the kind of mic control you know goes so high and he's almost clipping the mic but you can tell he's leaning back and then goes so low and deep and smooth right up on it just perfect but i'm coming to your party I won't be able to stay, but I'm gonna kiss you, kiss you, one more time, then I'm going away, come on and sing it to me, goodbye, baby. Oh, it sounds like his tongue is in your ear when he's doing that, like, oh, I'm going <laughs> that, away. Oh, yes, <laughs> Solomon. <laughs> We've mentioned so many of the same notes too. I mean, this was one of three songs on the record that I sort of flagged as I thought being, you know, exceptional even compared to the rest. And Rob, you know, you're talking about clipping. Like I'm even like I even have some notes here about like mic overload, right? Now it really sort of makes the song, right? In some places, like he knows what he's doing. I also have this note: nice use of stereo. Does anybody? Do, do any of you guys know like what in here is? stereoed out i don't but i um we're gonna talk about another song that song uh, won't you give him one more chance that's got that mm-hmm. 12 string guitar yeah that I guess about oh yeah yeah so you like yeah. you take that you take out your left headphone oh yeah and it's a totally different song and it's like it's very interesting we'll, anyway. we'll be able to have some interesting conversations about the the digital mix versus the vinyl one too because yeah the way it's arranged digitally i think they sort of pair those those songs 
Yeah, honestly, like I I think that this is a this is a master at work with range and mic control. And that's the one thing that I, I, I feel like really shines through. Getting right to that top of his shout and getting that little natural distortion on the sounds like you guys can see in the background here. I have the orange bass amp there that gets that mm-hmm. like sort of little natural distortion on it and just makes it sound so fucking good. And I feel like yeah. he was doing that with the mic is so good. And drums are so simple, but that one punctuation that they do, he's like, and I'm going to your party. And he doesn't repeat it again. It makes it so much more impactful. They're just like, oh, I got it that one time. It's exactly where it needed to be. I feel like a lot of drummers would have done it every on every punctuation beat of that like B part of the song, but it's mm-hmm. perfect. Such taste. Do we know anything about what the house bands around this time were like? I mean, this is an er- this is early in the era of the studio musician, especially for this style of music. Was mm-hmm. he were they used to this style of music, or were they hired by the studio? Do you know anything about that? I only know about it for the biggest hit on there, which is "Cry to Me." That that's where you can find the most information about the studio band. I don't know who was playing on Goodbye Baby and also Someone to Love Me because it was the same it was the same session and those backup singers again I feel like they are just the star of this song. Mm. They come in and they start the song, right? Like right at the beginning of the song. I don't think Solomon Burke even sings the Goodbye Baby. I think it's just the backup. Comes singers. out of the gate with Goodbye, right? Yeah, the, Goodbye the, the, Baby. Yeah, yes, that's right. yeah. Yep. yeah. I think it's just the backup singers doing it there fucking killer which is such a difference from like the and we're going to talk about the this track in a few minutes but uh you know the just out of reach that's kind of that old like just out of reach. yeah right yeah rob i remember being uh in a bar one time with you and we we're listening to I, I forget which sam cook song we were listening to but you were just like this is like the whitest set of backup singers I've ever heard <laughs> for like a soul song. I'm trying to remember what song it was for, but like th- this is not the whitest group of backup singers. These women are fucking wailing. It might be that song, You Were Made For Me. A fish was made to swim in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, totally. It sounds like they're all like wearing Harvard sweaters or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah, five neat guys. Yeah. They got the backup band from uh, the Lawrence Welk show <laughs> right next door. <laughs> just picked up those 60-year-old white women singers and just moved them. Adam, this is now the second time you brought up Lawrence Welk. Hi, because we're going to, goddamn it, we're going to do a, a Lawrence Welk album at some point. <laughs> Are we? <laughs> no. I, I seriously doubt that any Lawrence Welk instrumental is going to be on the top 1,000. All right. I feel like we've covered what we need to cover on this song. It's got punch. It's got depth, it's got soul, it's got range. It moves, even though it's got kind of that sort of slow pace to it. Fantastic song. But talk about a song that moves. So going on to what on the original release was the second song, Cry to Me. This song moves. So another is Burt Burns wrote this song, heavily influenced by that sort of Afro-Cuban mambo stuff little caribbean feeling it especially i feel with like that but the drummer on this song is a guy named gary chester i think the drums really drive the song there is a, a whole other version of this song where you have like kind of a normal and boring drum beat behind it and it just doesn't have that same kind of punch but the the drums on it for a, a song of this era are like really driving and i found that to be like one of the things that like clearly yeah, he gives a fantastic performance. Solomon Burke does just really wails. 
but I feel like the drums just like make this, they elevate it beyond just like a good single from the era to something that's like a classic. I like the structure and the way they, they build because right out of the gate, it is that pseudo wall of sound thing, right? And it's sometimes it can be one note where it's like, okay, well, you come right out of the gate and you're already at 100. Where do you go, right? I think the second verse, they start doing the doo-wah in the background, yeah. the backup singers. And it's, it's such a nice little tasty add-on that continues to propel the song right so you go through the first verse and that second the second one the the backup duos come in it's just really really tasty in the lonely room and there's nothing but the smell of her perfume don't you feel like a crying Yeah, just I, I love the production. I agree. I noticed the drums too. I, of course, the background singers. Just the whole thing. It really is. It feels punchy and dynamic right right from the jump. That kind of the the way the beat kind of comes at you and comes in and out and ebbs and flows. Really, just stood out to me. I was familiar with the song, but I hadn't really given it a really thorough listen. There's a ton of other versions of it. I know that I went and listened to like. I don't know, the Rolling Stones do a version of it. A bunch of other artists have covered it and none of them get close, I think, to just the energy and the, like you said, the uniqueness. I don't know if it's if it's just the beat or the production or the singing, but it's all those components together really meld into, it's a classic from A to B, I think. And does anybody else love the part where he does the cry, 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 cry? Like I listened to it, a bunch, and that was like the spot I kept waiting for. That was like a, that was my favorite spot of the song. Yeah. Is waiting for him to do that, breaking up the cry part. Well, the fantastic thing is that like you know that he's not looking at a lyric sheet that says cry, 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 cry. <laughs> you know, he's just feeling it in the moment. And you know, the story goes that um, he was introduced to that song by Bert Burns, who played a like very slow and somber version of it. Like he wrote that song to be kind of slow and somber because like the lyrics are fucking kind of depressing you know it's kind of like a longing love song like it's written from the standpoint of like somebody who's watching a woman be treated poorly that he's like in love with from a distance and he's like oh if you feel like crying you can come cry to me and it's like you know and apparently they recorded several versions of it like way down tempo and solomon burke was like fighting with burt burns the whole time like no this is not right for the song and burt burns like i wrote the fucking song you you tell me what's right and wrong and then they was like after doing like four or five like very lackluster versions they finally were like and this is back in the day when they're like clocking that studio time you have three hours i like how it's contentious right from the start right didn't you say this is where they first meet or something like yeah we paired you up songwriter it's like fuck this guy yeah no they're they're they definitely had a very contentious relationship actually your song is great but the tempo is all wrong yeah you you wrote a good good. song but you're thinking about it wrong i i know more about your song than you do so shut the fuck up and let me sing what i want and he was 100 right by the way 100 right if this is a slow song we wouldn't be talking about probably even this album if he recorded it as a slow song. But yeah, I, I, it's fantastic. It really rips. Again, that drum fill, that kind of like punctuating coming in and out of the verses. Absolutely killer. Absolutely killer. So let's move on. We got the song, Won't You Give Him One More Chance. I picked this song because I feel like 
and this is not my favorite song in the album. I like it, but like it's I, I like the weird dynamic of like I don't know when that twelve string guitar line came in. It comes in instantly. No, but what I mean is like in the writing process. Oh, oh yeah. Like when they decided to put that twelve string guitar in, but like again, because especially the version you can listen to on Spotify, it's like hard panned. The the yep. twelve string is hard panned to the left. You take out the left. It is just an entirely different song without that in there. I don't necessarily think I like it more without it in there, but it it feels like it's trying to give you that kind of like it, it's definitely trying to have an influence on the feel, which I just thought I thought it was very interesting. If you pan it, if you listen to just the hard pan right. Interestingly, the uh, the most prominent instrument is a triangle. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, mm, that is interesting. I want to go back and re-listen to that now. That's yeah, I didn't listen to it without the guitar. It's an interesting experiment, but I thought that in particular is what pushed it towards a very Harry Belafonte kind of vibe for me. So, but it it, it stood out on the record just for being different. So it caught my ear right away. Of like, oh, there's this much guitar like this early, and I, I don't know. I'm not used to hearing guitars being such a prominent driving instrument on recordings from this era really and it's and a 12 string at and that. a 12 string yeah yeah i also so my i had a note here that i, I liked that the backup singers were pleading on behalf of him like to whoever <laughs> yeah. they're singing to it's like here, here are the singers let them go just give him one more chance and then he comes in you know i'm sorry I, just one more time and then they say no really listen to him give him one more chance it was just it's cool. all right <laughs> right yes <laughs> you're painting a quite a word picture because i'm picturing like him like pleading to this woman and it's like a group of women behind him <laughs> doing like the, <laughs> yes. you know won't you give him what right. <laughs> yeah uh, that's pretty funny so the one other thing that I wanted to point out, again, this is just, I'm just, I, listen, I'm sucking Solomon's dick on this album because I think he's <laughs> such a great goddamn songwriter and goddamn, I'm sorry, he's a great goddamn singer. The, there's the line where he's like, if you let me try, I'll make you see. And like the natural vibrato that his voice gets on that is a total pro move. Like for somebody who is ostensibly like not, a industry veteran when it comes mm-hmm. to singing on albums it is so fantastic i that must just be like innate talent or talent that was like fostered in basically like the the black church experience of having this very like song driven um worship experience why can't you see that my love is true it is so good every like i that's the thing while when i'm listening to this song i will literally pause it and rerun it 10 seconds to just hear that vibrato again it's so good so vibrato on the voice and guitar can be the hallmarks of singers and guitar players you know what i mean and and if you you know bad vibrato right eddie vetter he's got goat vibrato it's like one frequency every note he can't dial it up he can't dial it down it's just it's, it's goat Did you vibrato. call him goat vibrato <laughs> <laughs> i love pearl jam man but i'm just saying you know he's got goat vibrato that's what i refer to it as Solomon burke is obviously one of those people who can control it and and really well right not just the the intensity, but also uh, I'm doing I'm doing this motion with my arm, you know, the way amplitude. The, yeah, exactly. Like you gotta modulate the amplitude. Right. Like how far 
How far can you push it before it goes out of key? Go to hell, Phil. <laughs> All my flailing really doesn't make a whole lot of sense in a podcast. But anyway, so yes, I appreciate his vibrato. Great to make fun of people when they're not there or listening. No. Yeah, that was uh, well. That was James, right? You got to yeah, modulate right. the amplitude. You mean you have to turn up the amp? So we got to increase the volume. Increase the volume. Is that what you meant? <laughs> Anybody else have any final comments on this song? You know, I really thought this song grew on me really fast. Like the first time I heard it, I thought, like, wow, this is such a whack departure. And I and like I think it's actually a good moment to talk about the digital song track list versus the 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 vinyl one. So for me, like when I was listening to it, I, I just thought for sure this was song one, side two. Because on the digital mix, you get, well, you give him one more chance. Uh, hard ain't it hard. You can't love them all. Beautiful brown eyes. He'll have to go. With the exception of he'll, he'll have to go, those four songs, won't you give him one more chance? Hard ain't it hard. You can't love them at all, all and beautiful brown eyes all have the same like hard guitar pan effect, right? Mm. It's like they have an acoustic guitar thing. And it's like, I noted it like, oh, like it's weird that they're like sticking to this as like a production choice on side two, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, I thought this song was great. Uh, and it really, I thought it was really quirky the first time I heard it, but it grew on me incredibly fast. Yeah, I think quirky is a good uh, descriptor of it because the first time you hear it and it comes in with that guitar, you're kind of like, yeah. what the fuck is exactly. that? Out of place. Send me to a different playlist? Hang on, let yeah. me go look at my phone. Oh, no, it's the mm-hmm. same album. Yeah. yeah, but on on the vinyl version, this is song three. Mm. It's, uh, it's it's Goodbye Baby, Cry to Me, and Won't You Give Him One More Chance, like, you know, right out of the gate. Which, for again, for like somebody listening to the vinyl album, it is a little bit of a weird experience where you're just sort of like, mm-hmm. okay, Goodbye Baby, like locked into this slow, driving soul. And you got Cry to Me, like, this kind of moves, a little Calypso. And then you get this, and you're like, wait, is this like going to be like a weird pseudo-Calypso album? Is that what I got myself into here? And then quickly pulls right out of that. So we're going to go on to uh, just out of reach of my two empty arms, not open arms, empty arms. Rob, I think you uh, particularly want to talk about this song. Yeah, this one just jumped out at me as something I really wasn't expecting. I think when I turned on the record, I was expecting what, what you know, more or less what I got from Goodbye Baby, which was great. So I was just I was just impressed with the range. Like uh, we mentioned, it sounded more country. It sounded like Elvis to me. I, I was impressed with it's just another way to be impressed by Solomon's uh, voice. And, you know, I wondered and then kind of researched a little bit and heard an anecdote about how if he was trying to sound white or if that was part of a marketing strategy, basically. And so I heard a story that he had recorded it and it wasn't getting enough play. And I'm a little confused about the, the chain of ownership here, but somehow Gene Autry owns the song. He didn't write the song, but somehow he had like owned publishing rights to the song or something. And pro move. Right. And so Solomon had the, the song was recorded, but it wasn't getting play, but he somehow meets Gene Autry and Gene Autry was like, Oh, I really like what you did with the song. Like I'm going to get it played. I'm going to pay these DJs. Like I'm going to get it done. And he basically gets it played on white stations. And then I'm drawing a little bit of a speculative line here, but I heard another anecdote that he got booked unknowingly, obviously to play a KKK rally. And then he showed up oh and they God. were like, are you serious? Like, you can't, you can't send him out there. Like, that's not going to work. And they ended up bandaging his face to, uh, <laughs> to obscure his face from the crowd. And he played. Wow. That 
I mean, they could just give him a hood, right? He just played in the hood. <laughs> I like, I like that he still wanted to play. Also, <laughs> well, he's like, listen, I got, I got all the concessions on. Yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't walk away from this. He's got the concessions. <laughs> like, like, look, I'm here. I'm getting paid. Who do you think they bought that cross from, man? <laughs> I sold him the gas too. Come on. I got bolts of white fabric in the truck. Away <laughs> from <laughs> you. And all your charm Just out of reach Of my to empty That is, uh, yeah. We talked about, like, I can totally see the Ray Charles connection to this song, too. And it's funny, you talk about, like, Gene Autry owning the rights to this. That was apparently, like, they were just, like, slinging publishing and distribution rights back and forth to be like, you know, just be like a phone call. Like, hey, I'll give you a thousand dollars for the distribution rights of that song. Like, hey, Johnny, how's that song doing? Oh, it's not so good. All right, yeah, fucking thousand dollars. You can take it. <laughs> <laughs> the other anecdote you kind of brought up is like Gene Autry being like, I will pay to get this song played. And this is just something that came out of that, that Burt Burns autobiography. And it has to do with Dick Clark. And the whole payola thing with Dick Clark, apparently, by all accounts, Dick Clark was like the king shit bastard of payola. He would demand more money than everybody else. And like oftentimes he wouldn't even play your song, but he had such a big platform that you kind of couldn't help but continue to pay him. Because if you didn't pay, if you paid him for this one song and he didn't like the song, then like he could just say like all of the publishing song, all the publishing rights that you have for any song. I'm not gonna play any of your songs if you're not gonna pay me. If you're gonna get pissed off at me for not playing the one song, he was the mafia boss, right? Well, he got he got pulled up in front of uh, Congress to talk about the payola scandal. Apparently, Dick Clark viewed it as like this is just sort of a gift to me that you're giving me, and I can choose whether or not I want to play your songs. And he would just fucking drag people over the coals and pull as much money as he could out of them. So yeah, even Dick Clark's a piece of shit. Apparently, are we going to talk about Solomon Burke's uh, weight and and then his death? Because <laughs> oh. him dying on a plane—that's a—that's a real fat guy pro move. It's a fat guy pro move. I mean, well, I gotta imagine it was like a blood clot in his leg went to his brain from uh, him being extraordinarily fat. Listen, so I mean, you can't just praise this guy the entire time. Come on. Well, so so my I I do have a criticism from one of the the songs on on the album. So it's someone to love me, right? Mm-hmm. So, is that the name of it? Yeah. Someone yeah, yeah, yeah. So this tune, I originally was bored by it. And then I let it play two or three more times. And it was one of those things where his, just the sheer power of his voice sold me after I heard, heard it second and third time. The only, my only critique there was the guitar, the little noodling guitar throughout. <laughs> it's a joke. I, mean, I agree. It's like I gave it to my daughter and was like, here, just playing. It's like, blink, 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 blink like it would have been better if they had just <laughs> kept it out and yeah. then it's obvious uh i don't know if they were intending on that being a sing uh, a single because he's crushing it and he's singing and he's just pouring his soul out and at the 257 mark it just like cuts out and so the song is over by three minutes that was the b-side <laughs> to goodbye baby uh so the guitar player which I think did a really good version. I think the guitar player did really well on uh, 
on um, Goodbye Baby, but it's kind of the same sort of sloppy style. And it's two fucking chords. Like it is an F to a B flat. And then the one, and I, and I really do think that like they do a good job of building that tension before they go to that C of that like finally, finally. Yeah. It's fine. a good resolve, right? Adam, right. Adam, great. Would Jimmy Page have done a better job on this track or no? Yes. Yeah. Really? They brought Page in. I mean, this one is super incompetent. Like he's not even like fretting the notes. My my actual, my, my note here, Adam, my actual note is funny, funny half out of tune guitar solo, baby BB King Jr. (laughs) Wow. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> That's good. That's a good description. You walked away and left me. You didn't even smile or frown. You told our friends that our love was through. You had a nerve to come to the dance. One of the other things that I really like on this song is it's really the only song on the album where somebody is harmonizing Solomon Burke. And I don't know if it's Solomon Burke or not. They had the low harmony. Yeah. That you made me love you. Low harmony on there, which is the total throwback to the Lou Rawls harmony on Bring It On Home to Me, the Sam Cooke song. Mm -hmm. What a low harmony coming in. When I heard the low harmony, Tom, I thought of you instantly. I was like, oh, Tom will like this song. But I, but as a, this is my favorite song on the album. <laughs> but, at, but as a complaint, there is another song on here, If You Need Me, that sounds an awful lot like Bring It On Home to me, I think. To Adam's point maybe a minute ago, I think Solomon Burke's voice is so good and his performances are so good that there can be a little bit of a laziness in the repertoire. Maybe you could argue just a laziness in the songwriting from back then, like kind of borrowing from each other. But it, it, to me, that song sounds a lot like the Sam Cooke song. Yes. I mean, I, I just have Sam Cooke as a, as a note on many of these songs. And I was just curious, like, well, like what's the cadence, right? Like, these, all these songs are released by 64. When are these Sam Cooke songs released? Like, I, I am curious about, like, uh, the interwoven chronology there. This is my favorite thing that I found out in researching. I clearly was like, all right, I got to look into Sam Cooke. I looked into Bring It On Home to Me. In reference to this song, because again, this is my favorite song on the album. I, I think that this one has the pathos of like, and again, he talks about this stuff like you had a nerve to come to the dance with somebody <laughs> yeah. new. He's fucking 25 years old at this point. <laughs> like, what dances is he going to? But whatever. That's besides the point. Um, this is actually the one song that was solely written by Solomon Burke. So this is the one there's one song on the album that he wrote. As an aside, Bring It On Home To Me. This is, this is my favorite thing to, to find out. Bring It On Home To Me was recorded April 26th, 1962, and was released May 8th, 1962. Wow. That is a turnaround of less than two weeks from the recording <laughs> session to the release. Wow. Which is fucking incredible. I cannot believe that they were able to get it printed and released that fast. Yeah, print yeah. that shit. <laughs> Yeah, that, that is impressive. It's like they were ready to print it before he recorded Seriously. <laughs> it's like they told them that like they already had the stickers printed up because they told them what the title was going to be. And they're just like, we just got to get that uh, we gotta get that lacquer made up so we can print out this 45 and get it out there. 
he finished singing and they had like a page take the reel to reels off and just start running to the factory. <laughs> Go, Billy. Ah. Uh, all right. That's the last song that we're going to talk about on the album. There's plenty of other really good songs. He does a Woody Guthrie song on here. That song, Hard Ain't It Hard. Woody Guthrie song. It's great. Really good. I, I Again, I cannot recommend this album enough. I think it's fantastic. But actually, be- before we move on, can can we talk about one more song? And this is actually something I'm just curious about. Maybe we could just sort of like flag it as a as a future a future note. What was the fifth track for me? Can't nobody love you? Like, mm-hmm. what is the deal with that chord pattern? Like that chord pattern is it's sort of like nobody knows you and you're down and out. It's sort of like something else too that I couldn't put my finger on. You know what? Let's take a listen to this right now. This is not one of the ones that I think we had prepared to talk about before, but you make a very interesting point about this corporation. So let's let's pause a minute and we'll take a listen to this. Can nobody love you like I'm loving you, baby? Cause they don't know how to love you like I do. And mm, can nobody love you like I'm loving you, baby? So like the first half of that chord pattern, it gives me like a nobody knows you when you're down and out and vibe. And then it sort of has like a back half, like blues change. It sort of does like a don't think twice, you know, I'm all right. Sort of like turn around, like not that that would have come out first, but yeah, there's just something really, really familiar about it. And lots of there's a Bonnie Raitt song. I don't know if it's like an old, uh, an old something to talk about. Is it something to talk about? <laughs> no, it's it's uh, I I can't remember the song, but it, it's uh, "Woman, be wise, uh, keep your mouth shut, don't advertise your man." Is is the is the chorus? But it follows this basically the same chord pattern. So that um, yeah. I'll have to dig that up and we can throw it in the line. Woman, be wise. Keep your mouth shut. Don't advertise your man. I Just, uh, by the way, different times. It's like, listen, if your man starts fucking other women, it's your fault. Right. Like, you have told him that you've told other women that he's attractive. So, like, right. he, that's that's on you. He has no power. It's all. It, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to, I didn't learn the song, but I'm looking at ultimateguitar.com and it does look like it's the same first three chords as nobody knows you when you're down now because yeah, I, yeah. I also thought of that song but i didn't go explore it yeah there's just yeah there's just something about that chord pattern that i'm like like curious as to where the origins of that are it's a solid progression very reusable very noticeable it's like that uh that journey progression that <laughs> don't stop believing that's been repeated in uh, you know probably 1001 pop songs so this is one three six Classic. Classic. <laughs> Good old one three six. <laughs> yeah. One five six four. That's journey. There mm. you go. All mm. right. <laughs> mm. This is one three major six though. That's the maybe that's the difference. Yeah, yeah. All all I mean all major actually. Yeah. Oh yeah, you all capital it. numerals. You're gonna get a sharp third in there somewhere. Magic's gonna happen. We got to bring a piano to the next, uh, the yeah, next this, podcast. And one this of us this can... is great pod, guys, but I think we're just going to move on from the – This is painful. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I'm gathering anybody who listens to this right now is a total music nerd, but I think you might have just out-nerded the audience. And so we're going we're gonna to pull it on back, and we're going to talk about does this make the cut? Does this belong in an album that you have to hear before you die? 1,001 albums you have to hear before you die. Does it make the cut? Adam, what do you think? 
Yes. So out of the the four that we've done so far, this one, I'm, I'm going to give it a yes. It was fun. I appreciated that. Obviously, right. A different time. We're in the 60s. It's 12 tracks. It's 35 minutes. Like I can I can listen to this and and it's just great. I can listen to it in a setting. It's not a giant, you know, overwhelming amount of music. It's just the right amount. Great flow. Great singer. Yes. Enthusiastic thumbs up for me on this one. I agree. I, I this was a this was a real pleasure to listen to. I had not heard this record before, um, with the exception of one or two tracks. I didn't even really know who Solomon Burke was. Uh, so it was a real pleasure. If you're interested, there's going to be B-roll where I talk about Peter Green's Magic Blue Scale, and if you need me, it's a yes for me as well. I feel like this is the first album that we've really listened to where it, it really does feel uh, classic, uh, almost birth of a genre, whether that's sort of apocryphal or not. But I, I certainly think at the end of the day, you can't go to your grave without having heard a fair sampling of Solomon Burke's voice. So I think this is a good example of that. It shows his range. It shows his stylistic range, as we talked about, and absolutely enthusiastic yes from me. Well, it's, a, it's four for four. I am clearly very on board. I was a fan of this album before. I'm still a fan of this album. After having listened to it probably 10 times over the course of this week, I didn't get sick of it. My wife didn't get sick of it. My kids didn't get sick of it. I think that you know that says a lot. Some albums I'm sick of them before I am through six tracks. And this one, I'm like listening to it again. I'm pretty happy about it, still finding new things. For, and that's one of the things that I think struck me. For very simple songs, not super complex construction, repeat listening still gave me new little things to find to love about it. And and that is just the hallmark of a well-produced, well-created piece of art. You know, it's the same reason you can go and look at a, a painting again and again and again and find new things to love and get new pleasure out of it. I, I, I think that this has elevated it to the level of like true art. And um, yeah, I love the album. I think it's fantastic. I think that... The album for next week is gonna, you know, it's gonna have a lot to to stack up against. Oh yeah. So speaking of which, should we? Well, as you said, how <laughs> <laughs> shall we go about picking that album, Tom? Uh, you know, I uh, am going to get the the Albinator. Um, I have it out in the hallway, and uh, it's all primed up. It's ready to go. We're gonna spin that wheel. We're going to get the magic results. So, drum roll, please. Next week, we are going to be doing... Ooh, Donald Fagan's The Nightfly. Donald Fagan's oh, yeah. The Nightfly. Finally. Right. Oh, yeah. Nice. If nice. Steely Dan wasn't nerdy enough for you... Right, we're going to take it a level <laughs> deeper. Little quick fact... Uh, Donald Fagan, 1985's People's Sexiest Man of the Year. So uh, you are that scene is awesome. I bought yeah. that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! I remember seeing Donald Fagan when I was a kid. And I think I asked my dad, "Who's that vampire playing?" The game? Oh, God. I mean, it, age must have been really rough. <laughs> oh man! God. So I'm I'm looking forward to this one. It's oh my fun. god! Like, yeah, he is, he is what grounds could he ever be given sexiest man of the year? <laughs> if you're excited oh. to hear us talk about sharp nines, <laughs> <laughs> Donald Fagan, 1985 sexiest man of the burn ward. 
It's not. Oh, sexy. I've got a whole world to go down there. It's impossible. Uh, You know, Rob and I saw Steely Dan, but it was uh, after Becker died. So it was just Fagan. And uh, it was like the desiccated Muppet of Donald Fagan had been resurrected (laughs) with the sickest fucking band you've ever heard behind him. He couldn't hit any of the notes. (laughs) They were so good. But he did. But he does. Like, I will say, like for an old guy, he does a decent job of disguising it in the arrangement. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he knows enough yeah. to know he can't hit him, and he surrounds himself with people who can kill for sure. And, and desiccated Muppets, which which may be <laughs> the greatest band name I've ever heard. So he looked like a Muppet without somebody with a hand in him. He's kind of crumpled up over the piano. <laughs> You know, this, this, this takes me back. This takes me back to a good decision I made when many years ago, I'm going to guess Marty. I don't know how else this, this Craigslist post would have come across my desk, but I I came across the Craigslist post out of Los Angeles to purchase a Yamaha keyboard, like a, like an organ, a weirdo Yamaha organ that claimed to be the organ that did the solo take on Do It Again and could show provenance back to Becker's studio in Maui. And it's actually interesting is a lot of Becker stuff has shown up on the internet, like a lot of Becker stuff, I guess. Dude, Wait, did did you buy that? No, no, it was like $3,000. <laughs> okay. And I was going to have to pay for shipping from LA. And I don't know what I would have done with like a weird pitch bending tone organ by Yamaha they made like 185 of I think the answer is get into a lot of fights with your wife about it yeah. <laughs> this is a great investment honey come on look at this paperwork <laughs> this was this was played by some studio musician <laughs> on the classic track to it again I'm sure also that you wouldn't get tired of that that su- that sound like I'm sure it makes a lot of sounds not just okay. that one sound <laughs> That you know from the Do It Again solo so well. <laughs> All right. Well, I, something tells me there's going to be a lot of different organ and piano sounds on the Nightfly next week. Yes. Very much looking forward to it. Until then, thank you so much for listening to our random ramblings about uh, fantastic artwork. For 1001 Album Complaints, I have been Tom. I'm Adam. I'm Phil. And I'm Rob. And we will see you next week. Boosh. Thank you.